Hey, Aaron, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh, today on the show. I'm really looking forward to having a, a really interesting discussion with you around uh, data ops for industrial IoT. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. Exciting awesome. times for sure. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah, so maybe um, um, for those of, uh, uh, of those in the audience who are not um, familiar with Hyabyte and yourself, maybe could you start off with an introduction about who you are and what Hyabyte is all about? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, some CTO at Hyabyte. I've uh, been here almost three years, I think, going on. Um, Hyabyte is really focused on data ops in manufacturing, which is kind of what we're going to talk about. So my, my experience in manufacturing, I started with Kepware back in 08, many years ago. Uh, so I think I'm going on 15 years in the space and uh, just trying to stay stay up to the with speed with what, what's going on uh, that's new. Um, but yeah, I work for PTC, uh, Kepware, and uh, now, now Hyabyte. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean... Um... Data ops, uh, I mean, it's a it's a term that is relatively new, especially to the OT world, right? So maybe to kind of like kick things um, off here, could you start by explaining uh, to us what is data ops and why is it relevant for digital transformation in manufacturing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it is it is new in manufacturing. And, and honestly, it's fairly new in IT as well. I think last year I went down to, we're based in Portland, Maine. I went down to Boston to a data ops conference uh, in IT. And, and I went to a bunch of uh, uh, presentations and it was really clear that like even in traditional IT, so e-commerce and stuff, data ops is still kind of fuzzy uh, or not as mature as you would have thought. So like in manufacturing, it's usually a few years behind IT anyway. Uh, so it's very new to manufacturing, but the, the way the picture I would paint in terms of data ops, like the end goal is uh, say you're a large manufacturer, you have dozens of uh, factories kind of spread across the world doing, doing similar things. Uh, and you want to get that data central. Uh, so you can do things like machine learning, et cetera, on it. Like data ops, really the end goal is it's a team of people. Maybe it's a half dozen people in that organization, right? That has a backlog of uh, from the business of things they're trying to do, mostly driven on use cases. So we're trying to do OEE is like kind of a traditional one, uh, scrap reduction. We're trying to do energy monitoring, right? That team is responsible for taking those use cases and implementing the pipeline of data to to enable them, right? And and you can think of it almost like oil and gas. It's it's down in the factory collecting the data. It's moving that data, you know, across networks efficiently, and then ultimately it's refining the data. Uh, to, to make it available for applications in the business, right? And data ops is the people, um, the process and the technology to do that at scale, which is the really important part. Because we can kind of, you know, we've been doing it for a while, kind of cookie cutter, building stuff, that kind of one-off proof of concepts. But this is really like, how do you do that across all those 50 factories with a team of, you know, half a dozen people? So, I mean, for, uh, for those organizations who are looking at... Um... Going down the, I mean, we talk to a, a, a lot of companies that are kind of looking at uh, maybe adopting something like the unified namespace, which we're going to talk about um, shortly. But uh, at least as far as I'm concerned, really the starting point is to kind of look at how to put together that data ops layer, which really feeds the 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 unified namespace. So for companies that are kind of looking at going down that path, what would you say are the key steps uh, to to follow when implementing a data ops strategy or maybe a certain skill set that they need to have what are the key elements to that 
Yeah, great question. So uh, my first advice is don't boil the ocean, right? We see a lot of companies kind of get lost uh, in digital transformation in general, trying to make it this really CapEx, you know, year-long, multi-year kind of initiative. And it's it's not that, that ultimately it's going to take that long potentially to get there, but it's it's actually not as difficult as, as some folks think. So the, the two mistakes I see people make the most is they start out with, hey, let's get all of our data into the cloud, right? And uh, that's a lot of work. You're solving some pretty tough engineering problems. And at the end of the day, the data might not be actionable anyway, right? So, so that's a tough place to start. Uh, the other place we, we see folks go is, hey, we're going to do a proof of concept and we're going to write our own code to do some manipulation, contextualization, movement of the data, Right. So we work with a lot of customers that kind of start and try to roll their own and then realize that they're not they're not addressing the scale issue of data ops because we got it to work in this one factory. Now we've got to go change the code. Now we're trying to maintain code. You know, we make tractors or, or whatever. We don't we don't write necessarily code. Uh, so they find themselves in that hole. Uh, the other piece is uh, data ops, in my opinion, is use case driven. So like I said before, you're starting with OEE or you're starting with energy monitoring or some some end goal that you want. And then you kind of work your way backwards to the data you need to try to prove out that that use case. So I, I would think of it in terms of use cases, really uh, similar to agile development, right? Like come into it, try to create a walking skeleton of how do we collect the minimal data we need, move that. Uh, contextualize that, get it into the application and iterate quickly, right? The, my biggest advice when it comes to data ops and manufacturing is you're focused on, I call it the N plus one problem, right? Like we can build this pipeline, we can get the data. And as soon as we get the data in and we start looking at it and we learn, now we need something new. So we're going to have to go back down and like add additional data, manipulate the data, change the model, something. And what you're really focused on is how do I reduce the cost of that change to near zero? So it's not like, can I get all the data to the cloud? It's not, can I perfectly model my data? It's okay, when I go to need to make a change at scale, how do I reduce the cost of doing that? And that's that's the data ops technology and process that's in there. Uh, and then, yeah, just, just so get started. So it's like you're building the proof of concept, but when you're doing that, you're not necessarily writing custom code or using you know MQTT or UNS, for example, and building that out because you know, well, once I have that component, I can continue to add and invest in that. And it's only going to pay back and make things easier as I go forward. Um, uh, so yeah, don't boil the ocean, iterate quickly, focus on use cases, and really always keep in your mind scale in terms of that N plus one problem. Okay. Interesting. So maybe let's kind of like focus on the topic of the uh, unified namespace. Uh, so maybe first of all, to kind of set the context here for um, for the audience, maybe just a, a brief description of what you envision or what you uh, consider to be the unified namespace, and then talk about the role that data ops plays in the um, unified namespace architecture. Yeah, no, great question. There's a lot of confusion, I think. In, in the space. So like unified namespace and data ops are not the same thing, but they are complementary, right? And I think that's where the confusion is. So uh, unified namespace today, practically speaking, is is uh, MQTT broker inside the factory, right? Like a HiveMQ. And it's the tooling, whether that's the PLC or HiBite or some application to kind of model the data and push that into the, the MQTT namespace and, and somewhat of an ISA 95 hierarchy, right? And what's beautiful, what's awesome about that is once you start to do that, you kind of you're using open protocols, the data is contextualized, and it's kind of the central repository of, of the information in the factory. So the great news is if you're if you're starting to move in that direction, uh, when you come in with data ops saying that, oh, well, I want to take 
data for all the pumps in my UNS, for example, and I want to get that up into S3, uh, AWS S3, into one-hour Parquet file, so then I can go analyze that through machine learning. Well, if that's all in a UNS already, it's pretty easy to tap into that, get the data you need, and move forward. If you don't have the UNS, you're potentially going down doing Modbus or OBC UA or trying to like tap into these more native protocols, and it's going to be more difficult. Uh, so yeah, so, so UNS uh, complements data ops. Um, and the other piece is like UNS isn't restricted into the factory either, right? Because you can, as you know, with HiveMQ, you can pipe, you can start to kind of build out that namespace, then you can move parts of it to a global namespace by bridging brokers and doing some other cool stuff too. So I think it is a transport for data. Um, the only other difference between data ops and UNS is today, UNS is all report by exception, right? So it's, it's really good for the real-time data that's coming through, which is most of the data coming off machines. But when you start to look at like transactional data in MES systems, when you start to look at historical data, like in Pi or, or historians, you know, UNS isn't necessarily the best data path today uh, because it's report by section exception for some of that data. And, and data ops can help come in and, and massage that and mix the data together. Interesting. Now, one of the um, uh, center pieces of uh, data ops or maybe for Hibite intelligence app in particular, is that ability to to model, to create models of, of your assets, right? Can you speak to me about the significance of, of being able to do that? Like, what's the significance of, of doing that object modeling as far as um, uh, digital transformation is concerned? Yeah, it's, it's all about context, right? So uh, when you think about it historically, you know, you're in a factory 15 years ago, someone set up a control logics PLC, uh, hooked that up to like a Kepware, you know, with a control logics Ethernet, and then named some tag in there that happens to be the on-off state of the machine, and then pump that into like factory talk or some HMI, right? And that was their when they went and developed that. That was their world. That's all they were thinking. Like, hey, I need to get the the PL. I'm doing the ladder logic. I need the PLC uh, tag, and then I need to get that into the HMI. They weren't thinking like stepping back and saying at global scale. <laughs> We need to know what that is, right? And that's the piece that, you know, even in the SCADA systems in the factory, not necessarily when they were implemented, thinking about that at global scale. So modeling is really, it's core to data ops because the data in the factories is, uh, quite frankly, it's a mess, right? And it was never thought of at that holistic scale. So with a data model, you can come in and say, well, this is a press machine. It's located in Albuquerque on this line in this zone, and this is the on-off state. And if you can model it close to the source, so by the time it gets to the UNS and by the time it gets to the cloud, it's fully contextualized, you don't care what that PLC tag was. And that's good, right? You've abstracted that that piece of information away. So, uh, I mean, like in most cases, um, some, some manufacturers may not really know what data they need, right? To build out this uh, uh, context or to build out like a, a, a proper, um, um, uh, uh, data ops uh, strategy. So can you speak to us about what are the typical sources of data which they kind of like need to look at and bring that information into the data ops? What are the typical data sources for integration into the data ops platform? Yeah, yeah, great question. So uh, you'll see there's kind of three buckets I put them in, real-time machine data, right? That's usually going to come in through OPC. That's the way we typically tap into it. But that could be Modbus. It could be native protocols as well. Uh, but that's going to be just real-time status of the machines and kind of what's going on. 
uh, transactional data, that's going to be more your manufacturing execution system. So like what was scheduled that day to be worked on? What's the status of those work orders? Uh, and then the last piece is just historical data, which is the stuff that Pi or, or Canary or whatever historians in the factory is kind of recording. Uh, there's other data sources too that we run into. I mean, we run into like um, CSV files generated by test equipment, XML files, uh, you're tapping into maintenance systems via REST, right? So what's really clear is if you're going to come in with a data ops technology, you need a lot of different ways to connect to all the different equipment because there's just tons of interfaces. I and mean, we still deal with uh, SOAP interfaces a lot coming out of the ERP systems. And uh, you'd be amazed at some of the transformations we have to do on the data just to get it <laughs> in, a, yeah. in a format that's that's manageable. Yeah. So maybe uh, if we could talk about um, the... The actual practices uh, within um, data ops, like things like data modeling, uh, normalization, and contextualization, could you speak about some uh, practices uh, that you see uh, work a lot? I mean, you mentioned also kind of like some common mistakes. Could you maybe also highlight some common mistakes as far as those practices are concerned? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when you, you're talking about data modeling specifically, some common pitfalls I'll, I'll see. Uh, folks will start and they'll try to model everything, right? So they'll try to model the entire factory as if it were like a digital twin uh, down to the uh, like top level site area all the way down, right? And it, it's it's a difficult exercise to do, right? To go around and do that. Uh, so it takes time. And then by the end of it, if you, if you did perfectly model, let's say you perfectly modeled it and then you got it into UNS or you got it into the cloud, what you'll find is the instant it lands there, someone's going to come in and try to use it and say, I need a change, right? Or I need something different, or I need like a, an increased sample frequency, or I need this in different units. So my advice there is to always, and I've already said it, like be use case driven. So don't, don't you know, your, your goal is not to perfectly model the factory and create a digital twin, right? I think digital twin is a cool academic concept, but in practice, uh, it's not super practical today, at least where we're at. So really focus on, am I doing preventative maintenance? Am I doing uh, energy, like energy monitoring, OEE, whatever your use case, it may be autonomous vehicle monitoring, uh, but focus on that use case and the data set that you need for that and start to think about data ops and UNS is like uh, kind of this use case driven repository where I could come into a branch and be like, okay, this is the, the these set of use cases that I'm driving and this is the data that I need for them. So your models are less around and you could create asset models too, but I think the most effective customers we see are use case driven models. Um, the other thing is just to try to keep the model simple. You know, we see customers come in with models with like 10 levels of hierarchy, 15 levels of hierarchy. You usually have to flatten that by the time you get it into cloud systems anyway. And there's a lot of cloud systems that will limit hierarchy even if it's supported. So like really try to bring it down to like a flat list of the minimal set of things that you need. Um, keep the context in the model is important depending on the system. So like, like site area line, that kind of information should probably be metadata in your model anyway. That way the, the data is self-contained, right? You don't need to reach out uh, for additional metadata. Like it's all in the, the payload and you can use it as you need. Uh, the last thing I would say is that a lot of folks get caught up on model governance, right? So they start when they, and it's an important, it's a super important concept. Uh, but when you're just starting, you know, starting with the idea of, well, how are we going to lock these data models down and how, how are we going to manage that when you haven't even implemented a data model that proves a use case that drives value for your business? It's a little, it's premature. 
in my opinion, right? Because I think the governance piece is totally doable. Like we're adding features and high bite and data ops in general to help solve that. I think like HiveMQ just added some schema validation stuff, I think that I saw, which is awesome. So I think the industry and the and the um, the players in the industry will create the solutions around that. But I don't think you want to start with data governance because it can really slow you down. And those models early on are going to change a lot anyway. And the only time you really need governance is when you start to go to scale it across a bunch of facilities, right? So you've already proven the use case, you've proven the value, you're in the scale phase, and you just want to lock down the models so that you can manage changes to them at scale, which is important, but it shouldn't be like your first problem you try to solve. Interesting. So maybe just to kind of linger on, on, on that topic a bit. So talking about governance and, and being use case driven, um, how much of uh, what um, the consuming applications uh, um, ingest should um, uh, influence uh, your data modeling strategy? Should you build based on what applications need to consume that data or should you kind of like standardize or on a specific model and then look for applications that work with your model? What goes first? Which way do you yeah. kind of like? It's a good question. I, I think you should go application down. Okay. Yeah, and and really focus on like what is the data set that that application need, or the use case that we're using in that application. You know, perfect example is we we want to do um, conveyor monitoring and try to predict failure of of conveyor belt motors, right? Well, what information do we need to do that? So you create a data model around that. You would go then push that data down, collect it, you know, connect to OPC or the data sources that you need. That would end up being like let's say Azure Blob or let's say. Um, You'd land it in S3 as files. You'd feed that. You'd have a Lambda or something that feeds that into TensorFlow to try to like train the model and start to predict failures. Then you'd have a feedback loop when you saw a failure to push it back down to the factory. But that data model is very specific to that application, right? And like I said before, if, you, if you've done the work in the factory to build out the UNS and make that data like easily available, you could tap into that and make it a lot easier. But ultimately, like the model piece that you really care about is that end application model. And you know, maybe that conveyor belt model at scale saves you millions of dollars a year in, in downtime, right? So when like approaching the um the issue of data modeling, these kind of like options, right? Uh a part of it you've already spoken about, like being able to kind of like customize it to suit a specific uh, use case. And there's also like standardized data models, standard data models, right? Uh could you speak about what what are the advantages of going down the path of trying to fit into a standard data model and uh, what are the disadvantages of that yeah so so in my opinion uh it is so we start to think about model governance right it, it's i think it's beneficial to go pick a stand a modeling standard that you could use as like your central repository of, of models. And maybe that's, you know, DTDL for Microsoft, maybe that's OPCO information models, but it, it's a way to like, in a standard, define your model definition such that you could, you can manage it, right? Uh, so I think when you get to that point, that's important. I think the idea of using standard models for plug and play, where like, you know, this piece of equipment has a standard model definition that's let's say driven by MT Connect or OPCUA information models. I think in the space, the data ops space we're in today, that plug and play uh, factor isn't as relevant. It's just not, we're just not mature enough yet as an industry to really like 
embrace those modeling standards and really enable plug and play. I think OPC UA is an example of that, where like in certain niches, the information models are really useful, but then you step out of that and, and no one really supports um, the, even the protocol or their implementation of the protocol, the information modeling, right? So I think when you start to think about governance, it's a really good idea, but the, the con is if you, um, you're pro early on, you're probably gonna iterate on your models really fast. And in my opinion, how you model your data is one of your competitive advantages over time, right? If you figure out that data model for the conveyor system that saves you millions of dollars a year, you know, as a business, you don't want to necessarily standardize that because that's that's giving you a competitive advantage. So I think there's an element there too, where, hey, we want this to be flexible in-house and easily to change. That's more beneficial than trying to adhere to an industry standard at this stage. Yeah, so I mean, as you have already um, alluded to, like, there's kind of like really a confusion between data ops, MQTT. So all these technologies, uh, maybe because they're kind of like really evolving at the same time, right? And uh, could you kind of like explain what you see as being the role of MQTT within a data ops ecosystem? Yeah, yeah. So MQTT uh, core to UNS, right, is a great way uh, to kind of start to free up that data inside the factory, right? So like like we're saying, you build a UNS on MQTT, report by exception, really good for real-time data coming through the system and make and make that visible. The, the only challenge there is that, and I think this is changing, like PLC communication, I mean, UNS somewhat competes with OPC UA in the factory. Like it's pretty clear that PLC to HMI, that's still OPC UA, right? That's not totally changing. Uh, Spark plug is like eating into that a little bit, you could say. But um, I think like in it, not changing that, the addition of building a UNS on MQTT with JSON payloads, the beauty of that too is you can start to tap into stuff like AWS IoT Core or, or HiveMQ in the cloud, right? And once you kind of have that, you can start to bridge that data out pretty easily compared to other, other technologies to do it. Um, I think did did you mention Sparkplug, or we might as well talk about Sparkplug? Yeah, sure. Let's 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 uh, dive into Sparkplug. Yeah, so so uh, Sparkplug's great too, right? When you see there is uh, PLC is actually adopting Sparkplug, and it ha you know it has the ability to, to templatize data as well as the um, the binary format in Google Protobuf. So what's cool there is. You know, compared to like an OPC UA, you can enable Sparkplug, push it into a broker, and things like SCADA or Ignition, for example, can kind of automatically fill out those tags, and they just kind of show up. Like, it kind of feels like magic when you do it, which is pretty cool. Um, the challenge with Sparkplug today, and I think this will change over time, is that as soon as you get beyond the SCADA layer, you know, cloud platforms don't support native Sparkplug, so you need to do a translation, and it's not, it's not super difficult, uh, but, you know, I don't see AWS or Azure in you know, I don't see them adopting Spark. I'd be surprised if they adopt Sparkplug at, at this stage. Maybe in the future they will. So you kind of always need that that translation from Sparkplug out back to basically MQTT JSON. And I think I think that's being worked on in the uh, standards body to help with that translation. I, I think that's a known a known um, obstacle with uh, with Sparkplug, but. Really interesting. And again, UNS, if you start to build that in the factory, it's only going to help your data ops strategy because you can easily tap into that data uh, that's just readily available in the broker. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you've already um, um, spoken about uh, the role of uh, OPC UA. You've touched on that a bit in um, 
in a data ops uh, 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 strategy. Uh, I don't know if there is a, a, a clear line of demarcation, but are you able to speak about where do you think the role of OPC UA falls within that kind of like uh, data ops or data integration between IT and OT? And, and, and could you speak about the role uh, that OPC UA plays within a data ops strategy? Yeah, yeah. The OPC UA is, is is critical to data ops strategy because it's it's in the factory today, right? And it's not it's not going away, and it, and it does serve like a really important uh, place, right? Like in, like I said, in that communication between PLC and HMI, you usually have an OPC server, and that's like a tried and true. It works. Probably not going to change. Maybe even in ten years, right? That it's just going to be there, just the kind of the way manufacturing works. I think. OPCUA has some really great qualities. Security is one of them. Uh, it also has the ability to, you know, read, do polled reads on data, report by exception through subscriptions. It has the ability to do writes, right? Transactional writes, which aren't UNS can do it, but it's not it's not trivial and it's not as uh, it's not as transactional, let's say. So I think when you're doing you know writes down to a PLC, doing that through OPCUA makes makes a lot of sense in terms of just robustness. So I think, you know, if you have a data ops platform, even if you do have a UNS that you're building out, you want to be able to connect into that and use that. But you also are going to need to tie into directly into UA sources, you know, guaranteed. So that's that's a critical component. I think it was one of the first connectors we we built. I wasn't around. It was Tony Payne. But I think that was uh, that was one of the first ones. Yeah. Yeah. UA. Interesting. Yeah. So now. um one of the other confusions that I actually personally experience a lot when I talk about unified namespace is this effect of, um, so you know that uh, unified namespace is like a real time data, right? So that's like your, your your snapshot. And a lot of questions that come up is where then, how do I get access to history? Or do I get, uh, do I get historical data with unified namespace and all, all that kind of questions? What to you is kind of like an, an ideal interaction between unified namespace and historical data? How do you see them playing together? Or ideally, how is that interaction for you? Yeah, yeah, great question. This gets brought up very early on in the journey of UNS for most most companies. That this is the transactional stuff. So I think um, there's two there's two sides of this that I think of. The the first one is I think more more related to your question um, of well maybe not, but you know, data is flowing through the UNS, real-time data, right? Uh, report by exception data. So customers will say, hey, well, I will actually want a historical log of that information. So I actually like want my historian to feed off of the UNS. Yeah. And and how do, and then I want to come in and say, hey, what was the 10-minute average um, speed on this conveyor, for example, right? And, and that's really an historian feature. So UNS being mostly around MQTT uh, is not going to provide that out of, out of the box, right? So Today, what we see is people will connect into the UNS and then listen to certain feeds and then store that into like Influx or store that into OSIPI or whatever historian they they have, and then use some other interface to come in, whether that's REST or whatever native interface that has to be to access that historical data through that's coming through the UNS. It's a little tricky because uh, UNS is like, if you think about it as JSON payloads or spark plug, it is complex data, right? So you need you need a story a storian mechanism that can kind of store that and or flatten it enough with context to be able to pull that back out. Interestingly enough, this is an area uh, you know, Highbyte, we just added a REST API onto our product. 
to come in and do transactional stuff. So to get like the real time state, after you've modeled something, you just come in and make a rest request and say, hey, what's the current state of this? Our, our ultimate goal is to, to kind of start to fill some of that need in UNS where you could tap into data streams, store that in your native historian, and then provide that rest interface to come in and say, hey, on this asset, what was the 10 minute average? Or give me the, the data for the last. It's almost like a translation layer between a native historian and taking that UNS data and finding out how to package it in that historian and then pull it back out so you can answer those kind of questions. So that's one as aspect that I think the industry will start to fill in, that kind of histor historical data of UNS. The other component of that question is, well, what if I already have an historian that has data in it? How do I represent that in the UNS? I think the short answer is you, you don't. Uh, the stuff that makes sense to represent the UNS is like, well, I want a 10-minute running window of values, or I want an average, or I want a min-max over the last day, that kind of aggregate information makes sense. But when you look at customers that say, hey, I'm trying to get you know two years worth of pie data into my cloud system, that's where you you don't you wouldn't go through a UNS to do that. And, and part of that is just like MQTT has a limit on payload size of like 260 megs, which is pretty it's pretty big. But when you start talking about gigs of uh, historical data, like you really don't want to run it through that that pipeline. You you would treat it's almost ETL like you would treat that differently outside of uh, UNS. Uh, and that's where okay. data ops would help you. Maybe to kind of like uh, quickly focus on the um, the REST API uh, aspect of, uh, of of Hibike that you recently added to it. So do you kind of like envision a situation whereby maybe in the context of a unified namespace, a component is feeding off real-time data from the unified namespace, and at the same time, it's also maintaining a connection with uh, over a REST interface to kind of like get that transactional information is that kind of like that picture that you you you're building here yeah yeah exactly so like uh we put out a few but like an idea that you could subscribe into the uns and you see like a, a pump come through with its kind of current status and then you want to come through and like well and maybe the pump doesn't make sense but maybe you like that has a pump id on it and you want like the most recent work order information. Well, it would be nice to have like similar to your UNS namespace, your MQTT namespace that's like site, area, line, pump, X, to be able to query something similar to that over REST and then pass it like a pump ID to say, well, give me the work order information for that pump or the most recent work order that was done on it and be able to return that back. And really, it's just an abstraction layer between you know the client and then all the underlying systems. But really, if you can start to harmonize the UNS namespace with some kind of transactional namespace, even the, you know, the same thing, if I can, if I can look at that MQTT um, topic that goes out to the pump and I can make a similar request over rest that says, well, give me the data from now to 30 days ago. And out comes this payload of like the historical data and it's harmonized over that, that address space that becomes pretty cool. Uh, yeah. And just, just um, it just makes, yeah, it makes sense. That's kind of where we're trying to head. Uh, with Hibite in terms of integrating with UNS. Makes sense. Okay, so to kind of like uh, wind down our conversation here, um, do you have like some uh, advice or maybe you can speak about some uh, common mistakes also and pitfalls that organizations need to look out for um, uh, when implementing a data ops strategy? Yeah, yep, sure. As I mentioned a few of them, but we can... We can uh bring them back up. One, one thing I would say is just don't try to build it yourself. I think, you know, a lot of our customers, the good news is when someone comes to us and they say, hey, we tried to build this ourselves, uh, they felt the pain of the scale problem pretty pretty quickly, right? Uh, so you don't really need to sell them on the scale issue or why they need a solution. They're already kind of there. 
But uh, if you can avoid that and the and the expense to try to go and build it and write custom applications and try to manage your own source source uh, code, uh, I would do that. The other thing is, like I said, I I really think the when you're where the problem you're trying to solve is not getting all the data to the cloud. It's not digital twin perfect modeling. It's the n plus one problem of hey, we got a data set up there, we learned from it, and now we need to change it at scale. How do we do that at near zero cost? Um, and that's, you know, that's the tooling, that's the process, that's the team around your whole data ops strategy. Um, let's see the, yeah, avoid. So don't try to get all your data to the cloud. Um, you can, there's an interesting, since, since I'll just bring this up because it's an interesting conversation, but there's this interesting idea now that with stuff like chat GPT in these linguistic language models that I could just throw all my data in the cloud and then use something like ChatGPT to be able to build the data models that I need there, right? Which is cool. I actually, I actually want to go off and start to play with some of that. Uh, I have it on my, whenever I get time to see how practical that is. My intuition says that, well, like we were talking about before, if we're going back to that PLC tag that was named by the controls engineer out in Albuquerque on that very specific use case, there probably isn't enough context or intelligence to, to be able to distinguish that, oh, that's the on-off state or oh, that's a vibration on, on this thing by just like a tag name and, and some of the data stream that comes through it. And I think there was, there, I actually saw something on LinkedIn where someone tried to do this with Modbus and it was uh, it was difficult, like it kind of showed. But but I think it's still, inter it's an interesting question, right? Can I push all the data and then try to put the context around it using uh, something like ChatGPT? But my, my, so my intuition says probably not going to work at scale. Uh, but if you're using UNS and you're modeling your data to some extent, so by the time it gets into the cloud, there's reasonable context around it, aside from just a tag name, then probably that enables you to use those tools more effectively, right? To start to build the applications that can use the data uh, without actually writing code yourself. So I think that's an interesting uh, area I'd like to explore too. Uh, we'll see in the future. But um, for now, I would say don't, you know, don't start your strategy with, let me get all my data to the cloud, because when you're talking like I have a million tags and I'm trying to figure out how to transport and land those in the, in the cloud reliably, it's expensive and it's a very difficult uh, engineering problem to solve. Uh, focus on end use cases. I've already kind of said that. I really think the future of, of uh, UNS and, and just in the, in the factory, this whole data ops thing is use case driven. And it's really a repository, you know, what you'll see is like a repository of use cases. And I really think like as an industry, what we're moving towards, we're really taking cloud technology and we're moving that down closer to the edge. You know, MQTT is an example of that. Uh, Kubernetes, Docker are examples of that. And it's almost like you can start to think about as what we're building in the factory is really, it, it's starting as data ops. Data ops is a really important part of that, but it's really almost like an edge data lake, right? Where we're doing some historization of, we're providing access to real-time data. We're, we're historizing some of that over UNS. And right now, most of the consumers of that are in the cloud, but you can start to see as you build that on the edge and you can orchestrate it via Docker, Kubernetes, or however, uh, factory systems will start to tie into it too to get, get data, right? It would kind of become the central repository. I think that's where uh, we're headed. And I think that's going to be very use case driven in terms of like the data modeling, et cetera. Um, yeah. I think data ops too, it's, it's an interesting realm where it's a mix of IT and OT people, right? It's people, yeah. it's process and it's technology. So if you're looking to hire for that, kind of build those teams out, you really want someone that's has really good IT skills, but understands the complexity of the OT world, right? 
And like when I talk to IT people that just don't get it, I often say, you know, go, go, go walk in a server room, yeah. right? Just take a walk in a, in a data center and come out and then go walk in a factory and tell me what was different, right? Pretty significantly different. Mm -hmm. So uh, you want someone that understands that, that complexity. Uh, and the other, I already mentioned it, but I would really start to look at edge computing platforms too. I think that's really important as this stuff starts to scale to be using Docker and Kubernetes at the edge. I think our most advanced customers are starting to do that. And it really helps with the deployment and management at scale of these types of solutions. So I think if you're not already starting to look at that, uh, I definitely, I definitely would. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, you, you brought up an uh, interesting point about like um, uh, the people, right? So uh would it be right to say that um part of what data ops also um uh, solves is 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 this need to capture uh what is called like tribal knowledge so would you say data ops is also a way of so of of capturing all this and documenting this tribal knowledge yeah or, or at least abstracting it away to a level that you don't at, at some level you don't need it anymore to understand but it's definitely it's definitely an ITOT project, right? And I think the, the the key, even for us with our customers, is it's typically more IT driven, but they, there's people that understand the OT problem. But what you don't want to do is your data ops strategy can't put a ton of work and effort on the OT folks because they're already swamped and they're already limited <laughs> in, in their manpower, right? So you can't like give them a big science project, yep. but you need to give them the interfaces and the tools that are familiar to them to be able to put in their tribal knowledge because they're the ones that know PLC tag X, Y, and Z goes to like on-off state vibration. So if, yeah. if you can just give them the simplest task to be like, hey, could you just fill this in in your free time? And once they do that, okay, we've got the data with context and we're good. But if you give them like a giant science project up front, they just don't have the time to do it, right? They're trying to keep the lights on, focused on production. So it's a, it's a balance for sure. Absolutely. Okay, with that, uh, we come to the end of this session. So, Aaron, thank you so much again for taking the time to come out onto uh, the show and share insights with the audience. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Good, yeah, anytime. Thank you.